Good morning again. We are continuing our series on Romans that we started last fall, and now we find ourselves in the middle of Romans 8. And as David mentioned last week, this is one of the richest passages in the whole Bible. We could do a whole series, like 12-week series on Romans 8. Um, So we're not going to be able to cover everything in this passage this morning. But as we come to the text before us today, we see Paul actually give us the greatest weapon to fight against and face sin and suffering in our lives. Paul and the scriptures are very honest. They don't paint this rosy picture. You know, things aren't that, that, aren't that bad. They don't dismiss our pain and suffering. And yet Paul provides a way to battle it and a way to have hope in the midst of it. So let's jump in and study God's word together from Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 25. Uh, This is God's word given for his glory and for our good. I'll read all of it. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace to us. We thank you for your word, for sending your son, for sending your spirit. We pray that you would soften our hearts this morning that you would make us alive in your spirit, that you would bring us to faith and repentance, that you would draw us near to you. Father, we know that there are many in here that are tired, that are worn down, that just wish they were somewhere else. There are some who are excited and who are passionately awaiting your presence to fill them. Father, we need you to meet with us. Uh, We pray that you would be with us, that we would know that we have met with you, and that you would transform our lives and hearts by your word this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 1994, um, when I was 12 years old, The Lion King came out. And it tells the story of the Lion King, Mufasa, who's murdered by his evil brother, Scar, who makes the king's son, Simba, think it was his fault. And as a result, 
the whole kingdom is reduced to a shadow of what it once was. Everyone in the kingdom is groaning, longing for their true king to return, to rid them of their evil and oppressive ruler. But meanwhile, Simba, filled with discouragement and loneliness and guilt and shame and despair, leaves. He goes into the wilderness, and it's not until later in the movie when Rafiki, one of the king's trusted advisors, helps him, and he sees a vision of his father. It's only then that he's empowered to fight the darkness around him, to engage in his purpose and in his calling. Mufasa shows up in this vision, and he tells him, remember who you are. You are my son. Simba had forgotten. He'd forgotten his father. He had forgotten his identity as the son of the king. He couldn't face the reality of his life, his pain, his suffering. He couldn't fight against it because he had forgotten who he was. And if only he would embrace who he was, the promise of a kingdom awaited him. And that really brings us to our passage this morning. We too, if we're honest, struggle to fight and to face the darkness around us, the sin, the suffering in our own lives, because we forget who we are, and we forget what's in store for us. So this morning, we're going to look at the reality of groaning, the weapon that Paul gives us to respond to that groaning, and how we can groan with hope. So first, we need to look at the problem, the reality of groaning in the world and in our lives. Throughout this passage, we see suffering and groaning. Verse 18, our present sufferings. Verse 20, the creation was subjected to frustration. Verse 21, the creation is in bondage to decay. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves groan inwardly. When we think of groaning, we think often of the noise that comes out on accident when we like bend over to pick up something as we get older. Um, that's not what Paul's talking about. Um, this word that Paul is using here is the death cry. It's the, it describes the sounds that would have been heard on a battlefield after a war was over. When the fighting was done and the sides would go tend to their wounded and those near death, that's the sound that would fill the air. But it's not just that. Paul says in verse 22, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Now some of you here have experienced this firsthand. And others of you have been near or have heard stories of childbirth. It's painful. There's pressure. It's intense. There's often screaming. And yet in the first century in which Paul is writing, mothers were actually in danger because women would often die during childbirth. So it wasn't just pain associated with the childbirth, but it's also this cry of a mother giving her life for her child. So this groaning is this death cry. And what's crazy here is that Paul says creation groans. So we have to ask why. Well, verse 20, it says it's, it was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And verse 21, the creation is in bondage and decay. That means... That the fate of the creation, everything we see, everything that is around us, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, it was placed under a curse by God. So as humanity went, so did creation. 
So now, what we get to experience is that everything in all of creation is slowly and steadily falling apart. It's dying. And we see it all the time, everywhere we look. There was an article even this week um, that there's a hole, I don't know if you saw it, there's a hole the size of Manhattan that was discovered in a glacier in Antarctica. And one of the researchers from NASA said this about it. He said the hole is a sign of rapid decay. But it's not just, you know, out there in creation and in, in just the, the trees and the leaves and the mountains, though that is very true. We see it in our bodies. We see it in our families. We see it in our relationships, our jobs, our schools. We see it everywhere. Sickness, pain, suffering, depression, anxiety, cancer, abuse, divorce, being passed over, being fired, being made to feel small. It's everywhere. And we feel alone and unwanted and isolated. And so we try to avoid suffering and groaning as much as possible. But the reality is it's inevitable. And it's unavoidable. It's one of the reasons we drink. It's one of the reasons we turn to substances. It's one of the reasons we turn to our addictions. We try to cover it up with plastic surgery, with cosmetics, with fancy cars and nice clothes, with vacations and with affairs, and with trying to be better than those people. But the reality is groaning is a very present reality of our lives. And we can't ignore it for long. It's coming for all of us. And so if you experience this groaning apart from the gospel, it can really bring deep despair. Because you don't look to the future because there is no future. There's only death and uncertainty and more suffering. So you focus on the present and whatever makes you the happiest, whatever fills the longings of your heart, and so you fill them with whatever you can. But the reality is, is you're filling them with things that are decaying if it's not the gospel. It's subject to the fall. It's subject to the groaning. And Paul is here, is real here, and he's saying suffering and groaning are part of the reality in which we all find ourselves. He'd agree with Dave Matthews when he writes in one of his songs, Be wary of those who believe in a neat little world. It's crazy. You know that it is. So, how do we respond to this groaning and this suffering? Paul gives us the greatest weapon to respond to our groaning here. He says, it's our adoption. He says, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you've come to him in faith and in repentance, Remember who you are in the Spirit. You are my son. Paul says, remember, if you are a child of God, you've been adopted. Verse 15 says, the Spirit you received does not make you slaves. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. There's only one natural child of God, and that person is not you. That person is Jesus. Our natural state, as Paul mentioned earlier, is opposed to God is an enemy of God, is deserving of God's wrath and punishment and justice. But if you've turned to him in faith and in repentance, trusting in Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension for you, it's by grace alone that you've been brought in. You've done nothing to earn it. But you've been chosen. 
and you've been given a new heart, as Ezekiel says. Your dead heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh that is alive. And as David said last week, you're filled now with the Holy Spirit. Your life is not centered around you and your flesh and your desires anymore. You've been set free. You've been set free from sin and death, and now you are empowered, actually, to resist the flesh, to resist sin. And verse 14 continues, those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. You belong to a new family. You have new loyalties and new motivations because you are a part of God's family. So what are the benefits or the privileges of being a child of God? These are the things that help us fight against sin, that help us fight and face groaning and suffering. First, you have assurance and security. Verse 15, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. If you are a child of God, you are not a slave. You don't have to live in fear. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves. You can't be thrown out or discarded. A slave in Roman times was a piece of furniture with a soul. They had to give of their bodies to do whatever task or torment that the master demanded. And some of us still live this way. We cower before God. We cower before our sin that entangles this, the sin that used to be our master before Jesus rescued us and made us his children. We live in fear as though we have not been set free that we haven't been given a new identity, we haven't been given a new status in Jesus, that we're not a child of the living God, but you have been. Whether you feel like it or not in the moment, if you are his, verse 16 says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. As if, as if the Holy Spirit walks into the courtroom of your life and he bangs his fist down and he shouts out, this one belongs to God. Case closed. Verdict rendered. Done. Once for all forever. Do you know that assurance and that security this morning? God chose you if you are his and he doesn't change his mind. That should give you great confidence to face life, especially when temptation and suffering came. But it's not just assurance insecurity that children of God get, we also get intimacy. Look at verse 15, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. We don't get to just approach God as Lord or even as Father. We get to approach him as Daddy. My kids don't call me Father unless they're trying to manipulate me for some reason. They call me Dad. They call me Daddy. They're terms of familiarity, of affection, of deep intimacy. God is not unapproachable. He's not distant. He's not far off. He's near. And you have access. So when we experience pain and groaning or suffering or temptation, you need to know that this God, He hears your prayer and He hears your cry like a dad hearing his hurting child. You know this. In my household, we have... Um, several different cries. Uh, there's, a, there's a manipulative wail that means you're not getting your way. Uh, there's a I need attention cry. There's an uh, I'm hungry cry. But there's also an I'm in danger or I'm hurt.
cry. And I respond to that cry very differently. Um, I run to my kids. I hold them. I wrap them up. I sit with them. I cry with them. I hurt with them. I don't say I can fix it always, but I'm with them. And that's just a shadow because I'm a terrible dad, if you knew. Um, It's just a shadow of how our God hears us. And he cares for us when we cry out, Abba, Father, when we're groaning, even despite what we're feeling at the time. Now I know that in hearing that your God loves you like a father, and you have the greatest love and intimacy and affection and warmth of God the Father as Daddy, that that only confuses some of you. That it only brings up more pain. Because your relationship with your dad, it wasn't good. It was painful. It wasn't intimate. It was distant. He wasn't loving. He was hurtful. He wasn't safe. He was abusive. And what I want to say to you this morning is we're glad that you're here. Um, I know this is painful, but I want to encourage you to think about it this way. That you need to see that your, or your earthly father through the lens of God the Father. Instead of viewing God the Father through the broken and distorted lens of your earthly father. God as Father will not fail you. He will not leave you. He will not abandon you. He will not shame you. He keeps his promises because he loves you and he is near and he is with you. So let the perfect Father shape the way that you see other fathers or the way that you see your own Father and not the other way around. Now, again, as another kind of aside, this is the spot some of us return to our suffering and we ask, well, if God loves us so much, why is all this bad stuff happening? Why this tragedy? Why this suffering? Why? The answer from the Bible is, I don't know. I don't know why you're enduring and experiencing the pain and the suffering and the groaning that you experience. But I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean God has left you. It doesn't mean that you've been rejected by him. It doesn't mean he doesn't care. And it doesn't mean that you're alone. If you are his, you are his child. That he sent Jesus to suffer and to die for. You are the one that Jesus groans on the cross for and experiences the silence of the Father so that you could be brought in and always have access to him. But then in in verse 17, Paul says, if we are his children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Sharing in his sufferings, Jesus' sufferings, is one of the callings. It's one of the privileges. It's one of the signs of being a child of God. And we go, what? I don't like that part. I like the assurance. I like the intimacy. But God, you can keep this part. And the reality is, he did. It's the family likeness. As we grow in our understanding of the gospel, of who God is, of who we are as a result as we rest in our new identity as children of God, as we grow in our holiness, as we become more like Jesus, as we share in his sufferings, we develop this family likeness. Because this is what Jesus came for, to suffer, to be rejected, to be sacrificed for the sake of others. 
to give of himself freely so that others might benefit. His family, his friends, his city rejected him, and ultimately he was killed. And yet, he was faithful. He honored God. He prayed and lived out, not my will, but thy will be done. And as a result, his death brought resurrection. His suffering brought life and hope. And so when we follow Jesus in his spirit, we become more like him, and we suffer in the same ways that he did, and we can bring about resurrection hope to those in pain and suffering as we serve those around us. Michael Bird writes this, Sonship sets Christians on the path of glory, yet such a path takes us under the shadow of the cross into the waters of baptism through many trials of despair as we track to our final destination. Earlier in Romans 5, Paul says we rejoice in our suffering, not for our suffering. We're not masochistic and excited, yay, I'm suffering. Yet, if we follow Jesus, if we follow him in his suffering, we develop the family likeness that produces the pattern of resurrection from death. And that brings us to our final point. So how, in the midst of all this, can we actually groan with hope? Verse 18, Paul, having just brought up suffering, immediately turns it on its head. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He says, I consider. It's an accounting term. It means I reckon, I count, I add up. I've taken it in, I've reflected fully, and this is it. Paul isn't trivializing our suffering. He's not trivializing your suffering or the world's suffering. He knew what it meant to suffer. Go home later and look at 2 Corinthians 11. Paul knew what it meant to suffer. So how can he, how can we groan with hope? How, How we deal with our present life is completely shaped by what we believe about our future. Tim Keller tells a story about two men who are put into identical circumstances. They're each told, you're each going to be in this room for a year, and you're going to be doing terribly difficult, tedious, boring, painful, physically taxing manual labor. You're going to work 80 hours a week for 12 months straight with no vacation. And before they get to work, you lean into the first person, you say, and at the end of the 12 months, you're going to get $15,000. And then you lean into the second guy and you say, and at the end of the 12 months, you're going to get $200 million. These two guys who are experiencing identical circumstances are going to experience them in radically different ways. The first guy is likely going to snap and is going to give up and quit. I can't take it anymore. Who can do this? Meanwhile, The other guy's whistling. Why? Because the difficulty, the pain, the tediousness of the circumstance is being outweighed by the glory that will be revealed. So how we deal with our present life is completely and utterly shaped by what we believe about our future. So what's in store for God's children? What is this glory? What is this inheritance? And is it really worth it? Paul says, yes, in verse 23, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Yes, we've been adopted as God's children, but there is a future reality that is coming, a fullness, a fulfillment that we currently do not possess, that we don't experience. We still experience brokenness and failure, 
and groaning. But a time is coming when Jesus will return. And when we see him, 1 John says we will be like him. Our bodies will be perfect. Our souls and our bodies will be reunited in resurrection and they will be glorious, unable to sin, unable to decay. The pain, the abuse, the scars that we've endured physically and emotionally and spiritually will be completely healed. There'll be a time when there will be no more tears or mourning or pain or sadness or death. Can you imagine it? 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human mind has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him. Paul later says in Corinthians, we can't even imagine it. If you tried, it would be a shadow. The best you could come up with. You can't even imagine it. But then in verse 19, the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Even though it's in bondage to decay, it will be liberated and it will be brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So even as beautiful as it is being in the mountains or being on the beach or being in the forest or staring out into the Grand Canyon, Paul's saying creation is currently just a shadow of what it will be when it's transformed by glory. Earlier I said that humanity and creation are tied together. So as humanity goes, so creation goes. Did you notice what creation is waiting in eager expectation for? For the children of God to be revealed. When Jesus returns, he will transform his children. And as N.T. Wright says, the creation is waiting on tiptoe with excitement for our renewal and redemption. Because when Jesus returns to renew us, something is going to happen in all of creation and all of the cosmos are going to transform. So the most beautiful sunset you've seen, the most glorious mountain or beach scene, they're like the drawings of children compared to what's in store for you when it's filled with glory. So believers, children of God, you are heirs. Heirs of God. Now that means you get God. You get Him as your inheritance. You get intimate relationship with Him as father and child. You get His presence. And remember, Jesus is returning, bringing heaven to earth so that He can be with you. That would be enough. But it means so much more. It means you get all that is coming to Jesus as well. New, healed, restored, resurrected bodies, heaven brought to earth. You get to reign and rule with Jesus forever as his brothers and sisters over all of creation. And this is happening. As surely as the sun rises, as surely as Jesus came out of the grave, you can bank on this if you're his. That is why we can hope in our groaning. Do you know this hope today? What would it mean for you to grab hold of it? To let God grab hold of you and make you his child. But how do we wait in hope? Verse 25 says, and so we wait patiently in hope. But patiently doesn't mean we sit around lazily watching and waiting, sitting on our hands. We wait actively with patience, laboring to bring this certain future into our present reality. I read a story this week of an engineer that 
visited an African village that had been ravaged by civil war. Most families had fled uh, because of the violence, and they wouldn't even consider going back because there wasn't anything to go back to. Essentially, all of the homes were ruined or damaged. The shops had been looted. The schools and the hospitals had been destroyed. And the man said, while everything seemed hopeless, a new well was dug by a foreign engineering team. When that happened, the mood of the town changed almost instantly. People got excited. They began repairing buildings and shops. Businesses began to reopen. Schools and medical centers were rebuilt, and some of the families even returned to their homes. The creation of that new well meant that the town had clean water, a source of life, and they could have a go at getting back to normal life. Hope overcomes the inertia of despair and energizes people with a vision that the future might be better than what it is at the present. This is what we as the church should be about. We should be digging wells because we have the source of life. We have the one that groaned and died so that we could be adopted children of the king. We've been brought in by grace through faith. We know the one that can bring life and resurrection in the midst of darkness and groaning and death. How do we face the suffering and the groaning and overcome the paralysis of pain? We wait with hope because we know we, who we are as God's adopted children and we know the certainty of our inheritance that's in store for us. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you that you came after us, that you chased us down even to the point of death to rescue us, to make us yours, that you've given us assurance in your spirit, that you've given us intimacy with you. Father, we need you and we love you. We ask that you would help us to groan with hope because of the one who groaned for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.